Hope well finds message. You finds message. This message. I well you finds you. I hope well hope message. This I you this this well finds you finds you hope you this I well. Hello, welcome to another episode of I Hope This Message Finds You Well. I am Eloise Sweetman, and with me is my friend and colleague Chris Dittle. Today we share an interview we did with Claire Butcher in May 2021. Claire Butcher is a curator and educator from Zimbabwe who cooks and collaborates as part of her practice. She is currently curator for public programming and learning with the Toronto Biennial of Art and wondering what the future of gathering and learning together might be, as well as how art education could transform the curriculum. Previously, she co-organized the program Unsettling Rietveld Sandberg with Judith Leisner and was an education coordinator for Documenta 14. I hope this message finds you well. What led you to become a curator? <laughs> oh my gosh. Also, just to say, please cut me off if I'm going on. I tend to be very tangential in my ways of thinking and responding. So yeah, just feel free to cut me off. I think like many curators... Uh, it was never really a kind of disciplinary thread for me to move directly into in my studies. So it wasn't a kind of course that was available when I studied uh, at university in Cape Town. Actually, initially, I'd wanted to be a set designer in theatre. So I went to drama school for about a month and didn't last um, because it was there wasn't a kind of a more technical stream that one could only focus on. It was a very holistic approach. So you needed to, which makes sense, you needed to understand what it is to be an actor on a stage. But then there was also stagecraft and then there was also playwriting. And, you know, so it was a it was a great approach, but certainly not one that I could see myself committing to for the four years of undergraduate study. So very swiftly changed course and went into art history and just loved loved everything that I was kind of learning from it and and that moved me into you know some great conversations with other colleagues who were also kind of looking around for like how do we apply art history in a practical way to you know the the living breathing artists that we are kind of seeing around us and so I was part of a really great cohort I think through my undergraduate and then into postgraduate and during my third year of undergrad, had the opportunity actually to go to the University of Wisconsin on a semester abroad. And it was a great deal because actually for every student that they sent from their university to ours, I think two of us could go there for free. So because American fees are so different from South African ones, it just worked out. And so got to study with financial support in Wisconsin, in Madison for a semester. And in the context of that, discovered this thing of galleries on campuses. So there was a, a really amazing art museum on campus that had a collection that, of course, was all like philanthropy donated, blah, blah, blah. And one of the components of an art history program there was that you would have practical experience within the gallery. So we talked about Carol Duncan and civilizing rituals of museums and thinking about just all of these additional aspects of, of exhibition making that really were of interest to me of like signage and audience engagement and the politics of collection. And so for me, I was like, yes, this is the thing that I want to be doing. How do I get further into this? So coming back to South Africa after that, 
was able to chat to a couple like alumni from my program who'd graduated and gone on to do things sort of in a similar vein and was then able to work as an assistant on one of the very few on-campus galleries at the University of Cape Town, which is the Center for African Studies Gallery. And that was a much more kind of transdisciplinary space, which was really great. So it would host a lot of discursive programs as well as exhibitions and presentations. So that was really great to kind of see how a non-collection-based gallery would work on a campus and what that might mean for learning opportunities, for bringing students together with academics and outside guests and But then there was also this on-campus collection of art that the gallery could also draw from. And that was also really interesting, was this kind of idea of a a dispersed collection over a university campus as a gallery almost. So what was it for the students to understand this as part of their kind of public, yeah, I guess public health wealth in the sense that they could have ownership of this collection too and understand that it was part of their education was to have access to these works of art. Many of these works were completely strange and not, you know, things that I would ever select for a collection. And that's what sort of got me and a colleague who were uh, working at the gallery at the time interested in thinking about, like, who is this works of art committee that's selecting these things and how do they do it and where are they? Because there was just no kind of public facing presence at all. And so managed to kind of find this very dusty old database somewhere of these works. And there were thousands of works actually dispersed across the campus, but then also hidden in storage. And so I think through that, that experience led me into, I guess, the more interesting kind of subsection of curating, which was looking into archival politics and just thinking about its relationship to knowledge production, to, you know, university establishments, as well as museums, which are all part of the same kind of colonial construct of, you know, who gets to keep the wealth uh, in terms of knowledge and history, and then how is that dispersed and how is that mediated? So I think that definitely was a very formative experience for me, just at this kind of interface of education and curating. Um, just being a student myself at the time, but then also thinking about who is this collection meant to serve? Um, so interestingly, actually, since then, discovered that they, uh, the Works of Art Committee at the university now have a new head and a curator and their entire database is online and their mandate and vision and collection policy is also now online. So just within 15 years, that's pretty impressive. And I'm really excited that that kind of shift has happened because actually as part of the fees must fall, roads must fall movement that was so kind of active at the University of Cape Town around, especially like these remnants of the university's also artistic past. So thinking about sculptures and monuments and also works of art, the the works of art collection came under major scrutiny and some works were actually destroyed. So I think it's, and now I'm sort of sitting here also after there's been this massive fire at the University of Cape Town, which destroyed you know, these, yeah, this very important set of holdings within actually the African studies and special collections and actually no other buildings were damaged. It's quite something that this kind of one building that held, you know, many archival sort of, yeah, quite unique archival holdings of sort of early linguistic transcripts of indigenous communities in South Africa. And, you know, so it's, it's a lot. And so I'm kind of thinking, I'm thinking a lot about the kind of roots 
that have brought me to where I am because of all of those kind of, I guess, pieces of, of my education that were happening almost without me even being fully aware of it because it wasn't part of my formal curriculum in a way. So I think that that is where I would say the kind of yeah, the the main motivation for me sort of moving into curating came from there. But then I think in terms of my kind of leap from South Africa to the Netherlands, which is was my first kind of professional step, I guess, into curating, was actually because of a former student in my program had actually interned at the Van Abba Museum uh, in Eindhoven. And so she said, just write them an email. You never know. I had a great internship there one summer and I was like, okay. So, you know, I mean, it's a ridiculous story and I completely understand how naive and very unaware of my privilege I was in the sense that I had a British passport. I could travel. I didn't need to think about visas. There was much less at stake for me to make that kind of jump, but also just the tremendous generosity of the museum who didn't know me from anything. And they assumed that I could speak Dutch because South Africa... One of our national languages is Afrikaans, and they assumed that I was older, <laughs> had more experience. So I think there were a lot of presumptions being made on both sides, but was very grateful that they gave me the opportunity just to come and actually work as an assistant to the head of collections. And that was meant to just be for six months, but ended up being a kind of two-year relationship in a dispersed way. But that was definitely, I think, a very important part of what yeah, drew me into a very particular kind of museum practice and approach to exhibitions and and artists, especially because I think the Van Abba Museum is very particular about the way that they work with people, um, especially artists. Um, unfortunately, not always arts workers, because I think in so many institutions, we see this hierarchy in the sense that teams are not treated the same as, <laughs> as artists and these kind of geniuses coming into a space. But I also really value that I think artists are always treated with a great deal of respect there. And there's a sense of, um, certainly in my, in my encounters, there's a, a technical precision and a kind of standard of excellence that I think was very educational for me to understand when you take on a project, this is a real commitment and you're accountable for this and this. And, you know, don't enter into those conversations if you can't kind of commit to seeing something through. And yeah, so I think also being part of an institutional team that size was very important and being a civil servant for the first time. So I was part of the city of Eindhoven as this kind of weird kid from you know, Southern Africa, who had no idea what the cultural politics of the Netherlands was, what it even meant to be in Eindhoven, as opposed to Amsterdam and the kind of cultural centers. So I think all of that was was an important kind of grounding for me in terms of how how I've come to also value second cities and being outside of sort of uh, cultural centers as well, because I feel like you can do something quite different in in those spaces. You mentioned working in an institution and in an institutional team on and off. And I know you also worked freelance for a couple of years. And now you move to Toronto, where you again work in an institution. And we oftentimes we talk about, you know, how how it is to work as freelancers. And uh, we make big presumptions about working in institutions. So we are wondering, how is that for you? How do you navigate freelance versus institutional life? And what are the differences? Yeah, it's an interesting question, because I think, and I'll start then back with the Van Abba Museum as a, as a way of kind of contrasting, I guess, my current work situation is that a museum is also a very different kind of institution to a biennial institution. So thinking about how, you know, a museum's timeline is exponential. It just goes on and on and on. And 
your role as a practitioner there uh, is understood within that scale because you know that the museum is going to outlive you. <laughs> so no matter how long you stay, <laughs> you your your lifetime doesn't sync up with the museum's lifetime. And actually one piece of advice that I'd received when there, because I was quite frustrated with just museum time and how long it took to put things into motion. And, you know, as a 20-something-year-old, I just didn't have the patience for this kind of process, even though I think there were different rhythms available to me and I could work within certain ways and, and those worked. But then in relation to the kind of lasting change or impacts that I was hoping to see, I didn't have the tools nor the vocabulary to kind of maneuver, strategize within those ways, because I also just wasn't trained, I guess, within that kind of policy making and administrative vein, which is such an important part of museum practice that a colleague was just like, come back when you're patient, like go do other things and then come back when you've got the time, which was really good advice because I could then expend that energy in very different ways on much sort of shorter term projects where I could see, I could see something happening in, in a way that was sort of like clear time, I guess. But in, yeah, in, in terms of then like leaving an institutional context, you leave a paycheck you leave that stability. And I'm sure you're both highly aware of of that precarity and just sense of vulnerability in this in that you're, you know, you're constantly so close to the wire in terms of being able to pay rent and cover your other costs. And there's so much it's a very different economy of of almost like faith of just being able to say, okay, I trust that this project is going to happen and I know that I need to be looking at something else. And, you know, all of those other skills in terms of personal fundraising and sort of maneuvering relationships in very different senses, I think that was a whole different sort of part of a methodology to be learning um, alongside just continuing to work with artists and create moments of encounter with, with different publics. But I think for me, what I found in that sense was a tremendous lack of skill on my own part of being able to navigate that just because I was never trained as an administrator. I, you know, felt like I was often landing in processes that I didn't necessarily have even just like the financial know-how to manage budgets, which is terrible. It was frightening as a 20-something-year-old being, you know, sort of assigned a certain budget by an organization and then just told to manage it. And of course, you've got artists and technicians and people who are all kind of looking to you to make this, this happen. So I think that was a very sobering experience of just having to learn what this commitment would then mean if I were to kind of strike out independently. But then also, what, how could we move away? And, and Chris, you mentioned this, a, a, away from this individual model to be thinking about, okay, I don't have the skills, but I also can never have all the skills. So how do I look for people around me that have those uh, sort of bits of know-how and knowledge that together we could actually do something interesting? And I think that that is what I'm so excited about in terms of the shift in our field of, of curatorial practice is people looking to one another to say, okay, I, I can't do this alone anymore. I could never. And I'm just admitting that now. So how do we do this together? And even those levels of just support and resource sharing and information sharing, I think I'm really excited that people are recognizing the need for that. And I'm just like saddened by how many years many of us have spent in isolation trying to do it all, uh, but not enjoying it either. I realized that I was becoming quite 
overwhelmed. And it was this kind of hostess mentality that I think comes from my, my family, many of the women in my family, of constantly wanting to seem so capable and so prepared and ready to tackle anything. And I was in, you know, it's this politics of hospitality as well, of like me inviting people into a situation like a dinner or a project or whatever kind of container it was. And then and then getting resentful at the same time for the expectations that that was putting on me. And I was like, wait, I have framed these expectations. I am the one inviting. <laughs> like, this is not fair to anyone else. So I think at that point, and this is actually, I think, Eloise, just before we met uh, in, in the context of the School of Missing Studies uh, master's program, that I was sort of on the edge of finishing a project that was looking at the, the SCORE archive of art in public space. And that was a really wonderful chance to also really experiment with the form of an exhibition over time. And, you know, I, I felt like that was really fun and we got to really pull out all the stops in, in a sense and received a lot of openness from the organizers to do that. But by the end of it, I just was like, I can't, I can't give what I'm hoping to give any longer to the people that I'm working with. And I'm just finding myself constantly disappointed with myself. This, this is not working. And so I think at that moment, I actually stopped making exhibitions. So I haven't made, <laughs> I haven't made an exhibition since then because I realized that that just wasn't the form that was going to work for me. So I think in, in this, the years since, I think working curatorially through education and through programming, that's where I found my space in the sense that, oh, it's not about objects, it's not about materializing a process, even though processes come with materials, it's about, it is about process and it's about relationships. And yes, those may take many different forms in the end, but I'm more interested in this in-between space of what's happening with all of us as we move to something together. But that the relationships also are different because, and I stopped calling myself a curator at that point, because I found that that, for me, gave me a lot of relief to just navigate each relationship as it came. So there wasn't a predetermined sense of, oh, you're a curator. When you come to do a studio visit, this is what I'm expecting from you. Even if that wasn't what an artist or whoever I was visiting was thinking at all, but that was what I was thinking they were thinking. So I think in that sense, there was less projection from me and I could just relax and be like, okay, we're just encountering each other. Let's build this relationship. What are we doing here? Um, but I think even within that, then it was accepting the difference in hierarchy because whatever we may say, the curator because of this historical baggage that it brings, also brings with it a certain amount of agency that an, an educator doesn't. And so I think that that is something that I'm now contending with because it's the first time I've had curator in my title join, joining the Toronto Biennial of Art. And it was partly why I chose to join the organization was like, okay, what if I can be a curator of learning and programming? How am I going to navigate myself within that space? And I think... Still, and because it's a different cultural context here, yes, the word curator does bring it bring with it some clout. You can get some things done. But it also, because it's programming and learning and because that's not considered as valuable within a contemporary arts context as an exhibition form, myself and our team within programming and learning are still constantly having to kind of ask for that same level of agency 
in what we do because we're not considered the same as the exhibitions team. So while we can get a lot done, maybe under the radar, which is what I quite enjoy, um, we're not given the same amount of space or resources uh, in a very measurable sense. So you can look at our budgets and you just see the difference. So it's, and yet all the images from programming are used for fundraising. So it's this, yeah, you're nodding and you know all these things, but I think it's really, yeah, I think that's been very interesting to kind of see now in a, in a very kind of, yeah, empirical sense almost. Okay, so when we adopt this kind of framing of our roles, this is what we might be able to get done. But then what do we lose in that context in terms of our personal energy or commitment to something or the expectations that we place on ourselves? And then what if we did go this other route that's maybe less glamorous and less visible and comes then with less, yeah, I guess, capital? what might we be able to do in the background that perhaps serves this greater goal of what we want to just be doing in the world as as practitioners. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm sitting and I'm, yeah, I'm curious <laughs> where I go next because I actually just have no idea. And And that's an important thing just to come back to the question of institutions and freelance working methodologies is that because biennials have a finite timeline, I know that this will end. So I'm building up to something that I know I will just have to let go. And, and that's my goal also is to build an infrastructure that someone else can take on because I'm not interested in like, oh, but this is Claire style and project. For me, that's the interest of working institutionally is to say, ah, I know that this is much bigger than me. And how can I be part of generating a kind of framework that someone else can build into in a way that they're not starting from scratch, which is what our team was doing in 2019 when we started. Yeah, it's interesting also because, like, you went actually from documenta, right? There's a lot of processes that you probably had to kind of contend with. Where then with Toronto, it's like really you are developing. Because is there a foundation attached to the Biennale in Toronto as well? It's a non-profit organization, but there isn't a foundation attached to it as yet. I believe that's the kind of long-term goal. But right now, it's basically a startup with a board. <laughs> so that's kind of how it's shaped. Yeah. yeah. But I feel like this must be also somehow both refreshing and yet challenging to and exciting, I think, to be developing these frameworks to then pass on where like, I feel like it must be different in the do documentary context also because the timing's different, but that you, you're, you're like, you're leg you're, you can leave a legacy in some way. Your fingerprints will be everywhere. To, to, to our detriment or celebration, exactly, because, and then you understand just the frightening humanness of all of this, right? Because just in, you know, like we just finished writing up a contributor agreement for publications because we've never had one. So how do you invite someone into a publication project in a way that's fair, that recognizes shared labor, that also doesn't make someone sign away the rights to their own intellectual property? How do we, what's the kind of language we use? You know, so just as you say, like on every level, you're creating every document, you're creating every infrastructure together, hopefully, or you're having certain parts of the team predetermined things that then you just need to navigate, even though no one's ever tested it out before. So there's a lot of a lot of teething 
teething issues, but also, as you say, it's tremendously exciting, but also quite a responsibility to have to be part of or to get to be part of, you know, framing all of those sort of terms of reference, I guess. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's, uh, I find that so interesting. Like, and do you feel that your work at Documenta is easily transferable to what you're doing now, or is it like completely different worlds? That's an interesting question. I mean, because in a way I was connected to the Toronto Biennial through Documenta because of Candace Hopkins, who's the senior curator of the Biennial in Toronto and was part of the curatorial team for Documenta 14. So it was through my working relationship with her that she, you know, reached out and said, hey, would you like to interview for this position? And you know, she's someone that I would follow anywhere to continue learning from because she's such an amazing practitioner and and human. But I, I was, I've, it's often crossed my mind in the reverse to think about her work in this part of the world transposed to the middle of Germany and to Athens as it was, and just wondering how, I, she's shared a couple instances of just the conversations that she had also just with members of the public around the kinds of works that were being presented in Athens and, and Kassel and just what a completely different conversation that was uh, from what is, is happening here, but actually not always that different. So it's been interesting sort of coming to, and I'll say Canada more broadly, because it is this kind of monolith in some of our minds about what it represents for particularly within, I guess, cultural fields, its discourses around Indigenous sovereignty and around restitution and repair. And of course, you know, the kind of legacies of the truth and reconciliation process here and what what was being discussed within a cultural context here that certainly in other places that I've worked hasn't been to quite the same degree and certainly not with the same kind of nuance. So coming here, there were a lot of expectations about like what conversations I would find. And yet, I think also within my role as someone who's working with a lot of different kinds of publics, you know, I'm in conversation with with educators who, you know, are mainly from a kind of white middle class and then now sort of what we would call like middle age sort of part of their life process and kind of coming to a lot of these questions also for the first time. So it's not something that has been ingrained in them from day one, you know, and and so many of them remind me of people that are my mom's age or that have grown up in places that I'm from that would also be asking the same kinds of questions and in some cases incredibly awkwardly or inappropriately. But I'm in a way grateful to get to have those conversations here because I feel like it is so much more closely linked with the work that I hope to be doing eventually in Southern Africa. So I think that was also part of what another kind of motivation for me working here was because I knew that my kind of methodologies and learnings in Western Europe are so context-based in the sense of the resources that are available for art, the experimentation that's possible because it's not a risk-averse economy. You can get away with a lot in terms of process and playfulness. Not that it's all completely fun, like there's some very deeply serious issues as well, but I realized that to work in a in a settler state is a very different thing and certainly much more similar to the working context in Southern Africa, even though there are completely different histories and priorities at work. I think 
yeah, for me, it was almost by coming here, it was a bit of a closing of a chapter to say like, okay, I've had this wonderful chance to incubate a lot of different sort of maybe more meta level aspects of how I'm hoping to work and and learn and, and kind of navigate this field. But by coming here, I feel like it was a lot of maybe the hard skills. We talk about like soft skills and hard skills. I feel like this is a hard skills place of like, you need to become a good administrator. You need to be kind of clued up on your conflict resolution skills. You need to, you know, so I think that that's definitely what I'm learning here, which I would then say could be very useful back in Western Europe. But a, a lot of the kind of, I guess, more philosophical and discursive elements of what I was engaged in, certainly with, within the work at Kassel, it's of course prepared me and informed me, but I'm not getting to draw on it in quite the same ways as I thought I might, because there's a lot of infrastructural work to still be done just within our organization. So also the conversations are completely different. If we're thinking about learning and arts education, um, we're currently developing a mediation strategy and the term mediation was completely unfamiliar to many of my colleagues, even though they're working within a contemporary arts sector for a long time. They were like, what do you mean? And so interpretation is something that people use here, but the conversation around mediation that I've been fortunate enough to engage with through my work in Kassel, but also more broadly, I guess, within uh, Western Europe, that's, it's a completely different scale. It's not about merely interpretation. It's, it's, it's everything <laughs> within what we do curatorially and, and educationally. And so that's been really interesting to have that conversation here and to maybe try and bring some of that learning. But then what does it mean in a context where you've got so many languages being spoken, you've got, you know, uh, so many very basic questions about like, what is a biennial even to try and kind of build that ground first, but with the kind of lens of, okay, what if we were to bring questions of unlearning and of transformative practice that many arts educators in Western Europe are also kind of advocating for? What, what would that mean to bring that here? And then how might that kind of combust in this very generative way with questions of land and resources and history uh, and the curriculum? Um, so I think it's exciting, but it's also just like, whew, how do we even begin to kind of tackle tackle those layers of the conversation? Like, it's so interesting to hear you uh, call, like, so do you you call yourself now a curator of learning, curator of learning and education? My official title is curator of public programming and learning, but definitely more the learning part and... (laughs) less curator yeah 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 yeah. yeah. but I think that that's also what's so nice with this kind of uh, questioning of what curating it is is that also that the the term curating can be left behind and yet we're still in the same we are in the same realm I hope this message finds you well I often tend to make like very broad statements so I'm trying to like nuance myself here because I know it's different in every organization but I think generally and I have also read a lot of texts around the kind of siloing that happens between education and programming and 
exhibition making. So even in some cases, it's further fragmented in the sense that also adult programming is considered as different from learning and education. And so I think it really does depend sort of where you are and what the kind of vision of the organization is, because there are many people, I think, trying to bridge these processes more holistically. I think about, um, who was I? Oh, you know, the, the last Berlin Biennial, it felt that their team was a lot more kind of holistic in their approach in terms of, and, and I think this has maybe been the, the case also for um, the Berlin Biennial 10 and 11, let's say, like, I feel like Gabi Morbo and, you know, uh, Renata Servetto, who I was more in touch with uh, for number 11, you know, she really kindly shared some of her perspective on how those conversations were kind of uh, surfacing and, of course, was very involved on a kind of on the ground programmatic level in terms of what what her role was there. But I think in terms of, yeah, the kind of, I'm also thinking to document a 14 and it was interesting that Sapaki Angiyama, who was our head of education, distinctly chose the title not to be curator of education, but head of education. And with that, she wanted to to designate a different sort of approach to how education might be done within the context of Documenta. Because again, even in an organization as old as Documenta, they often considered education very much as an afterthought in the sense that their education team would only be brought in maybe nine months before uh, the Documenta kind of opened. Whereas in our case, we were able to start a full two years beforehand because we got some special funding and actually the, the foundation that supported us said, we think education needs to start when everything else starts. And it's interesting that actually it came from the funder to make this very important political choice to say, actually, your work as educators is just as much a part of the foundation of what this project will be as, you know, those selecting the artists and the venues and what kinds of curatorial ideas would be at play. So I think that was a really positive experience in the sense that we were actually able to start and start like two years in advance. We started programming because we were like, no, this is a, a learning process for all of us. Let's open that up. And, and then we create a discursive context as well for whatever will happen with the exhibition. But almost by the time the exhibition opened, I was like, oh, right, there's an exhibition too. But we were kind of exhausted by that point. So it's also just this question of pacing, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I guess just to like wrap up that point, it was sort of, I think there's still a lot of conversations to be had that in a way, so in the process around this mediation strategy, like reading a lot of texts from like the early 2000s, just recognizing that so many of the conversations are the same still about, you know, I think curators who've been schooled in a certain way to recognize the value of certain things, even after the so-called educational turn within contemporary curatorial practice, there's still a lot of kind of uh, sidelining of, of so-called educational practices because those are seen as almost a kind of less intellectual approach or, you know, there's a kind of populism that comes with that, that, that I think people are quite suspicious of, even though I would say within arts educator context, there's so many very important and amazing conversations going on. But again, they're just happening in separate spaces. And so I feel like for curators, I would say also like yourselves, who are so engaged in programmatic and very learningful activities, 
how, what are the kind of spaces that we can kind of bring or develop new vocabularies to help each other understand what it is that we're, that we think is valuable within a certain project. And then to also think of projects rather than forms in the sense that projects help, helps us think through process. And then whatever those processes lead to, whether it is an exhibition and a program or just a program or just a publication, like I think the pandemic certainly because it's, because it's thrown up these formats in the air because there are so many limitations on what we can do. I'm really excited for how that's making us rethink those forms for what we need them to be doing in the future. Knowing for myself that in terms of programming, I don't actually know what the future of gathering looks like. I don't know. And in a way, exhibitions are kind of untouched because that sort of ideal is not to have like messy human bodies messing up this beautiful composition, you know, of, and, and when you think about museum design, they're not designed for humans. So I'm curious whether the exhibition will shift as a form after this and before the next pandemic, or whether, you know, we'll find that actually the exhibition is an even safer space to be because it can allow for gathering in a, in a very controlled climate, quite literally. So I'm I'm curious uh, what what this is going to teach all of us. Yeah, totally. Sadly, that controlled climate is not so much recognized in the Netherlands, where <laughs> art institutions and museums being closed since mid December, and wow. nothing wow. earlier than beginning of June is in sight for reopening. Wow. I I was thinking about this rather in terms of archives. You know, our exhibition spaces going to become obsolete when we can you know then realize that we can just make put online nice jpegs and have these kind of zoom conversations yeah but i think there's also something you've always been interested in right claire that like i remember a conversation we had at the school missing studies is that you're you're like always wondering what else the exhibition could be which is why like i think also we're we're also remembering that your cooking is an important part of uh, of your well yeah of who you are but also what you do and like and and it's like maybe could you talk about how this is an important part of your work yeah. or do you still sure. do, you, do you do you still think it's important or yeah it's a good question because i think I mean, you know, we all change and grow up. And I think initially the kind of including of cooking as part of my bio was a bit of just a, a disruptive tool to say, just because it says curator on my bio, please don't assume anything. And that actually cooking is a much more important part of who I am than, than curating. So I think that that was initially why it was inserted there. But I think cooking as as a methodology, perhaps, if we just think about not the kind of physical act of preparing food and sharing it, which is also very important in terms of just creating a very different kind of context for people to gather. I think cooking cooking up something uh, is maybe more where I'm I'm sort of sitting with it now and in, in the sense that I heard I heard a cook recently sort of talk about like, you know, preparing a salad is also cooking. There doesn't need to be heat involved. It's about the act of preparation of like sourcing ingredients, of taking care in terms of how something is put together, but then also letting it go to be received by someone else in a way that you can't always control or preempt. Um, so I think like maybe it's more kind of philosophical 
point now, um, especially in the pandemic, when I just literally haven't been able to cook for anyone in a very long time, which feels like I'm definitely missing part of myself in that. But yeah, I think something crossed my mind as I was saying that cooking, part of practice, thinking about what else the exhibition could be. I don't know. I'm also curious about this new Turner Prize conversation that started where so it's all collectives right and there's been this sort of response and they're all socially engaged collectives and there's been this response of like don't use us to kind of uh collective wash your money and the the legacy of this prize and what it means for the Tate particularly to kind of host these projects in the end and and so I feel like yeah, the cooking, the time of cooking maybe is over (laughs) in the sense that it's now more focused on sharing the ingredients. So like, let's not even think about the meal. How do we just make sure that the resources are distributed? Because the making of a meal is also part of a representational economy. And, and it brings kudos to the host in a way that isn't equally distributed to those participating who are bringing also to the table, very different, also valuable things. And I was listening to Brene Brown. I don't know if you guys have ventured into this uh, sphere of her, her work, but she was interviewing Priya Parker, who wrote this book, The Art of Gathering. And they were sort of listing out a bit of the kind of typologies of gathering that she's interested in and what, what this art of gathering is that she's kind of deduced. And I haven't read the book, but just listening to this interview was very interesting because she just talked about the importance of rethinking intentions before form. And again, I think that this comes very naturally, hopefully, to many of us within the arts field because there is so much time spent on what, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And then the how can maybe follow or within a particular school, I guess, of thought. Um, that's a process. and But just how how easily we slip into form nonetheless where it has to be an exhibition or it's of course it's a this or of course it's a that whereas in this conversation you know she was just saying when we just jump to form because that's what's expected you can feel it in the lack of intention that's grounding that form and we're all we all come away feeling compromised and disappointed and so I was like wow what if we could take that kind of lens to a biennial or to you know, a collection show or just to a single artist project? What if we spent that time just thinking about who is this for? What is it for? Why are we even doing this? Especially when resources are limited. We would, we would arrive at maybe the same forms, but with a completely different set of kind of mandates for ourselves and and those protocols of like, when we get into that form, these are the things that we're also asking from others who engage with it. And if we can frame that expectation generously, there's also a very different sense of accountability for everyone that's involved that I feel will be a whole lot richer as an experience for all of us. But then how to do that on different scales is maybe the question. And maybe that's quite good that right now we can only work on a very intimate scale. But I I agree with you, Chris, in, in terms of like the online exhibition. Sure, that's one form. But what what does that bring in terms of meaningful engagement with these incredible projects and thought processes that are part of that. And, and I, I think it can happen. But for me, what's missing in a lot of this is facilitation. So there's so much content out there. But like, what is that meaningful facilitation where 
I'm sharing a form with you, but I'm also telling you why and inviting you to engage with it in these certain ways. And of course, if you have any questions, we can talk about it. But I'm also taking responsibility for what I've put out into the world in, in that way. And and I feel like, yes, we need to be kind to ourselves because we can't do it all right now. And it's a pandemic and yeah, capacity is limited. But I then let's put out less, but with greater care. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious if that intentionality can be something that we approach anew, especially in a time of limited resources. Yeah. I hope this message finds you well. We should have our question that we ask each of our interviewees, and that is, what would you do if you weren't a curator or curator of learning and public program in this case, in your case? Well, I feel like it's a very timely question in the sense that I imagine all of us are rethinking priorities very drastically and like, what should we be doing in this world sort of during and post-pandemic. Yeah, I think for me, it's always been, curating has always been a very thin ruse just to be educating. And I feel like actually more and more, that's where my heart is leading me, is not to stop working with artists and other lovely people like yourself, but to come at it from a very different perspective. So I think my kind of next priority is actually to get my teaching certificate because I've never formally trained and to go into curriculum design, which is something that I would really love to be doing because it's such an important space to that kind of is almost before you even get into the classroom is to be thinking about what are those reasons that we come into the classroom at all and what what knowledges are we bringing with us and what are our expectations for what we're going to learn. So that's definitely something that I can see myself doing very, yeah, in the very near future. And as to whether I'll kind of come back into a kind of more professional art space, let's see. But definitely, yeah, I feel like that would be yet another kind of step in that direction of being able to develop relationships over time uh, with a very different kind of outcome or frame of reference in mind in terms of why those relationships are starting or what is it that we're expecting to kind of do together. Yeah, I just feel like education is just where where it's at in terms of priorities for me and certainly uh, just, you know, thinking of the kind of crisis that this pandemic has has posed for so many fields. I think within education, there are some really exciting possibilities, but there is also a need for people and energy and and that's certainly something that I could see myself being involved with so yeah it's definitely a very kind of like next step (laughs) priority for me I hope this message finds you well if you'd like to know more about Claire's practice we recommend watching her lecture on the second Johannesburg biennial titled trade routes was a beginning also follow her activities at the Toronto biennial of art in 2022 Everything is linked in the show notes. In the next episode, we interview curator and writer Cedric Falk, with whom we discuss the nature of exhibition making and its future. If you have feedback, you can email us at ihopethismessagefindsyouwell at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at ihopethismessage and find us on SoundCloud under the same handle. Our jingle was by the band Difficult and sound engineering was done by Nick Thomas. Hope well finds message, you finds message, this message. I well you, finds you, I hope, well hope, 
message this, I use this, well finds you, finds you hope, use this I, well, hope well finds message, you finds message, this message, I, well you finds you, I hope well, hope, message this, I, you, this, this, well, fine.